Y'all go ahead and take your seats. Grabbing your bulletins and turning to page 14, our weekly prayer guide. That's what we're gonna. It's gonna gonna be the template of this pastoral prayer together. Didn't you love in that confession where it says that that God is glorified and justifying us? Man, you want you want to get a hold of that. I, I think I've got a I, in this series we're doing. I'm gonna have to preach on that. God is actually glorified and justifying us. So the passion of God is all behind justifying you. That's phenomenal. Let's pray. Oh God, we, we delight. We delight in the fact that you have justified us. Lord, we delight that you justify the ungodly. We delight that even what we heard earlier from David that Man, it's not even our confession that justifies us. It's not getting it all right and perfect that justifies us. So, oh Lord, we acknowledge that probably, and I'm coming to this conviction more and more, that most of our struggles and our problems as Christians in this life is we've lost sight of justification. So, oh God... As we pray for our renewals, we pray for for you to do a deep transforming work in us. We know the direction it needs to go. We've got to have our hearts sunk deep into your justifying love and justifying grace. As Christians, we do. So, oh Lord, would you do this? Would you teach us? Would you give us the faith to believe in real life, in real time, in real places, in messy situations, and wherever we find ourselves now, all the inward, outward struggles, everything that comes at us, everything that we find in us, oh Lord, would you glorify yourself and sinking us deeper into justification? I know that's a big word, Lord, and would you teach us what that means? And Lord, we pray for, as that happens, as we begin to get grace, more so in deeper ways. Oh, Lord, would it not be contained just to us? And we know that's impossible. We know that as we do get grace, your scriptures are loaded with what happens. The early church and Acts, the things that we've looked at even last year and preaching through that book, that that you start adding to the number in a very natural, normal Christianity, that that is normal Christianity. As the grace of God gets God's people, the grace of God flows from God's people. So, oh Lord, would you grant that to us? Would you give us open doors into this community? And Lord, it's not, we're not asking for big events. We're asking that you would open doors and friendships and relationships and family that we already have. And that you would open doors in areas that seem to be very closed. We want to pray specifically, Lord, that you would lead us to find the unchurched people in this town. And lead us to the overchurched that are quitting the church. Would you do this, Lord? Would you add hearers to the gospel and 
justify even more. Lord, we pray for our local missions. We know the Morrises are coming back in town. We want to pray for them. We want to ask that you would revive them, refresh them, help us to come alongside them. Uh, Even as they come back, uh, would you cause the seed and the power of the gospel to even flourish while they're away, that they would see that the seeds that are planted, the word that goes forth is always an uncaged lion, always effectual to accomplish your purposes. Would you do this, Lord? Greatly encourage them. May it be like the parable of sowing the seeds, go to sleep, you wake up and there's a crop. And it's hard to figure out how it happened other than that you just did it. So, oh Lord, would you do it in China? And Lord, we want to pray too as well. We want to pray for the Pete Hattons up in Edmond, Oklahoma. We want to pray for your church to be built there. We want to pray that you would encourage them and build them up and deep and wide in the grace of God in Christ. Also, Lord, we want to pray for the pastor's conference this week, asking that as pastors come in that have come out of this church and those that are in training and as we get together this week, oh, Lord, would you bless the time. Use it richly in all of our lives. Would you encourage us? Would you, again, refresh us in the knowledge and the grace of the Lord Jesus? Would you create even tighter and deeper relationships and teamwork and that we're in this together and to encourage one another on to the ministry of the glory of the grace of God in Christ. Oh, Lord, would you do that? Lord, we want to pray for city and civil authorities, and I just ask personally for us that you would teach us how to do this. Teach us how to pray for this kingdom realm of common grace that you've given to the world. And help us, help us not to confuse that kingdom with the kingdom of God. But as a common kingdom of one of restraint, of evil, and promotion of justice, and a just social order, grant it, Lord, to these United States and all levels of civil authority. Lord, we want to pray for those with special care. We want to continue to remember Kendall. And she's going through the last rounds of treatments. Oh, Lord, would you strengthen her body? Oh, Lord, would you cause the chemo to do its cancer-killing work? And, oh, Lord, would you be near her? And would she taste and see your goodness in this fiery trial that she's in? And we want to pray the same for her mom, her dad, her sisters, an extended family, and church families were all concerned and care for her. We want to pray for the Galetsky's daughter, asking for continued knitting and healing of the body as she fights cancer as well. Oh Lord, would you heal these women? Would you give them and restore them to full health? And we ask this through the riches of your grace, would you do this? And Father, finally we all have people that we know of special needs. It might be ourselves in seasons of suffering, seasons of stress, seasons of spiritual darkness, whatever it is. 
Oh, Lord, silently we want to bring these to you now. Oh, God, we thank you that you hear us. Not because we're good speakers, not because we say the right prayer, because Jesus has made the way open. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, what are we doing? Well, we are in a series, a new series. Those of you who are just joining us, we're in a new series, and it's called a Dry, Dusty, Dead Doctrine Series. Aren't you excited? Man, you bet. I'm thrilled. I, I'm really excited for this series. Really excited. You know why I'm really excited? Because I love a church full of theological eggheads. Absolutely love it. I love a church full of spiritual speculators that like to dissect doctrines and like to dissect the finer points of biblical truth. I love a church like that. I mean, someone has got to stand up for things like superlapsarianism, right? Someone's got to do that. I mean, I love a church that we spend all of our time talking about how much we like the same things and we spend our times on blogs and emails, long emails and personal websites, writing to each other about how much we agree with each other and how much we disagree with those who do not agree with us. I love that kind of stuff. Don't you? I love getting those kind of emails. I I love five-page emails on, you know, why we should not go out to eat on the Sabbath. Love that kind of stuff, don't you? You know, I love the fact because someone's got to stand up for the real interpretation of Genesis 1 that Moses is really arguing against Darwinism over the nature of the days. Was Darwin around around Moses? I don't know. Um, You guys get my point of being a little sarcastic here. Just a tad. I love this kind of church. This doctrine does this kind of stuff. The proof's in the pudding, right? How it really generates our children. How the, the statistics overwhelmingly show that a church like this that's that loves this kind of stuff and is theologically egg-headed and talking to each other about these fine, fine, finer points of biblical theology that, you know, the children really grow up. Statistics show when they leave their house, they grow up to a genuine delight in God. It's amazing. And then they have a genuine love for people. They have a genuine love for the church. They have a genuine, real desire to connect with lost people. And when they leave, they are so passionately engaged and pursuing an impactful relationship in the community for the glory of God. Statistics really bear that out. Love that. There's another reason why I'm really excited about this doctrine series. You're like, oh, great. (laughs) Yeah, I got two of these, so hold on. I love dry, dusty, dead, lifeless doctrine. Yeah, I really do. You know what? I love where the sermon becomes a lecture. And I love it when it's preached in an unfelt way. Don't you? I mean, I love when we get out our colored pencils and we take lots of notes like we're in a church class. Love that kind of stuff. I love going verse by verse 
word by word, parsing the Greek verbs so I can show off my seminary education and actually cut back on my sermon preparation because that's only my first day of sermon preparation. So I could, I could just do my one day of sermon preparation and bring it here in the pulpit and share it with you. I love that kind of stuff. Man, I mean, I love that when we leave, you know, I, we get three to eight timeless principles. And then as we're leaving, we get this long, powerful, strong exhortation, maybe some music in the background to go apply this stuff into our life until next week when we get three to eight more. And then you've got to keep track of your 16, and then you get 24. At the end of the month, you've got 32 biblical principles to apply to your life so you can be a better Christian. Oh, man, I love that kind of church. I've got one more. Hold on. I do not like Jesus unexpectedly showing up in our midst and changing us on the spot. That's why I like, I love dry, dusty, dead doctrine. He never does that in that kind of church. I mean, all unplanned, unstructured, divine intrusions, glory and grace breaking in, that's got to be avoided at all costs. That stuff's too scary, too emotional, too enthusiastic, too unpresbyterian. The vision of Redeemer is to control God, to package God, to consume God like he's working a bunch of consumers. So here's the deal. Why? Why do I like this stuff? Because we have a glorious vision in this church of a nice God worshipped by nice people who teach nice theology. Oh, aren't you excited for this doctrine series? Please stand for the reading of God's word. All right, we are reading Luke 18, 9 through 14. Let's look at this. You know what I like to do? If I forget, just join in. Everybody will pick up. When we get to verse 14, let's read that together, okay? All right, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Together? I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The word of the Lord. All right, please be seated. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you. For your spirit, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that they're inseparable. And, oh God, I ask that you would show us very clearly the one whom you justify. And, oh Father, would you fill us with your spirit, Prince of Glory? Would you unleash heaven? Would you give an extra measure at this special day of the week? And through the preached word, open our eyes, open our hearts, 
O Lord, glorify yourself by breathing afresh into us those that are yours, that know you, living water that flows from justification. Those of us that do not know you, O Lord, may justification set them free. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You guys got my sarcasm. Great. But I'm serious. You could replace love that church with despise that kind of church and despise that kind of Christianity. Uh, Why? Because I'm better and now what we're going to do here is we're going to say, you know, oh God, I I thank you that I'm not like the Pharisee. (laughs) We turn around and do that? No, because we're all a bunch of Pharisees. That is the way we are prone to go. Brothers and sisters, if we haven't figured it out yet, those of you that have been in church in a long time, if you haven't figured it out yet, we go, natural, gravitational pull of the human heart, is we become that kind of church. We become those kind of people. We are those kind of people. Okay? So we've always got to lean against it. If you're not leaning against it, you will be there. You've got to fight against it. And how do you fight against it? Is we've got to look at dead doctrine. So here's what doctrine is really like. You ready? In the Bible, doctrine is like this great spiritual sponge in God's hands. And he stacks this doctrine into your soul and then he squeezes it. And it soaks your heart and it soaks your life with living water. It soaks your life with the presence of God. He squeezes doctrines and you're saturated with the love of God, the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Those of you, how many here are craving and desiring for a deeper work of the Holy Spirit in your life? You read every book you can on the Holy Spirit. You're trying to find how you can catch wind of the Holy Spirit. Maybe He'll send you a different, exaggerated, more powerful work in His life, in your life. How many are like that? How many want that? How many churches seek that? You know what the answer is? God squeezes doctrine, God squeezes His truth. And he soaks you. That's the answer. Okay? You with me? So that's why I'm excited about a dry, dead, dusty, lifeless doctrine series. Because it's a great spiritual sponge in the hand of God. And in fact, this is why we're doing it. This doctrine that we're looking at, the proof's in the pudding. This doctrine that we're looking at launched the Protestant Reformation. And I've said this three weeks in a row, so hopefully you're getting it. It's the largest, greatest, single, localized, outpouring work of God in the history of the church since the uh, Pentecost. Okay? This doctrine that we're looking at launched what's called the First Great Awakening, the greatest outpouring of God's work yet in the history of these United States. This doctrine that we're looking at is specifically designed by God to reach the deepest God-shaped longing, desire, drive in your soul and saturate it. Soak it so that you're filled. I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? I mean, how can you ever say, how can you ever like read a systematic theology with a heart not engaged in it? I don't know how anybody does that. All right.
This is what we're going to do. First, we saw the need for justification. And what we did there is we saw that in every human being, that being an image bearer means that you have a God-shaped hole in you. You can't get away from it. Our problem is we stuff that God-shaped hole with all kinds of things. But the deepest God-shaped hole in you is that God accepts you, that He prays you, that He, that he delights in you like a father delights in a child. You want to know where all your neuroses come from? You want to know where all your problems in life come from? You want to know where everything breaks down? It's stuffing that hole with things other than God's justification of you. Okay? So that's what we did. Last week, we asked the question, well, who is this God that justifies? And we dared to go to a place that we shouldn't go, but we had to go. Remember? Today, we're going to ask the question... Who is the one whom God justifies? Okay? So we looked at the need. We looked at the God who justifies. Now we're looking at who is the person, though, that gets justified? Who is he? Who is she? How do I become that person? Well, we're going to have to figure that one out. So that's where we're heading today. You with me? There's a seatbelt on the left-hand side of your seat. Please buckle it. If you need gas masks, they'll come down. You get plenty of air. Here we go. Let's jump into the text. All right. If you look at this text, there is a daily worship service in the temple at the time of Jesus' day. Daily worship service. You, could, you had two choices. You could go, you know, the, the morning people could go to the 9 a.m. service. Those that needed their coffee fix. Before they could go, there was a 3 p.m. service. So it's kind of like this. It's very interesting. I was thinking, you know, what would it be like if, if my wife and I had not met yet, and we were single and young, and we were temple goers. You know? You know what I thought? I came to this conclusion. We never would have met. I'd be at the morning service. She'd be at the afternoon service after her three cups of coffee. So you got two choices here. That's what's happening in this text. Now, each service begins outside the sanctuary. It begins at a great altar. So the service begins outside the sanctuary in front of this great altar. People are gathering at either 9 a.m. or 3 p.m. The first thing as you're gathering, can you imagine we coming in, you know, we're talking and buzzing and greeting each other and catching up on how we got torn up in the final four and all that kind of stuff this morning, right? Well, the way you kind of walk in then is that you, you would look up at this great altar and you'd see someone holding a, a lamb or an animal that's straining at the end of the rope that it's on because the animal is now in a frenzy beside the altar because the smell of blood's everywhere and the eyes are wide on the animal and the nostrils are flaring and it's bleeding these sick, merciful sounds out of it. Oh, that's a great... Good morning. Welcome to worship. All right? And as you come there, there's a precise ritual that's then followed the, the high priest precisely in a very organized, defined way by God, slaughters lamb. Takes the blood, sprinkles it all over the great altar. No one's making a sound. And the animal isn't now either. After the sprinkling, the priest begins to pray. In the middle of the priest's prayer, these silver trumpets start blasting and cymbals start banging. And then all is quiet. And when all is quiet, he reads a psalm. Now, at the end of reading the psalm, the officiating priest lights the prayers of incense and trims the lamps 
Now, this is very, very key because this symbolizes because of the sacrifice, the way is open to God. And what happens at this point, which is just absolutely fascinating, because of the sacrifice, God will now hear his people. And the officiating priest leaves the building. Oh, this is an incredible, powerful moment. He leaves the building and leaves all of us behind. And now, while we're left behind, this is an incredible moment because now we can pray to God, the God who hears ourselves, privately, individually. Unbelievable, isn't it? It's at that moment when the priest leaves the building that there's two men who start praying. And one man offers his prayers by standing by himself because he's doing his best to avoid sin by separating himself with people who have spiritual standards that aren't as good as his. Okay? Now, Jesus does an interesting thing when he tells the text. The original language is kind of confusing, and it's meant, I think, intentionally to be confusing. You can take it one of two ways. So what Jesus ends up doing is giving us two pictures to describe the man. First picture is this. You could translate it this way. The man is standing by himself praying. In other words, he separates himself from others. Okay? Or you could take it this way, which I think is the second way that it's meant to be intended. The man is standing praying to himself. In other words, it's all about him. The only person he's really praying to is himself. Incredible picture, isn't it? Now, when he begins to pray, we hear his prayer. We hear it because we're reading a text, but you know what? So did everybody else around him. Anyone that wanted to listen in. You want to know why? Because the common practice of praying in that day was to pray out loud. So can you imagine? Out loud, you hear, Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, which means thieves or thieving. I'm not thieving unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Does this shock you? I mean, does this offend you? Unbelievable, isn't it? Don't be shocked. And don't be offended. Especially us church-going people. You know why? Because we do this all the time. Oh, come on, Jeff. Yeah, we do it all the time. You know when we do this all the time? You know when we have those, those prayer meetings and these group prayers where we're together? And we are in these prayer meetings and these times of being together. It could be three of us, five of us, you know, ten of us, a group. And, and we're there and we end up giving these little sermonettes in our prayers because we think someone needs to hear what we have to say in the group. You ever done that? Oh, I've done that. And if you haven't done it, you're lying. Okay, We also do this church-going people when we separate ourselves and our children from those people in the church who don't homeschool. Ooh. Or if you go to public school, well, they don't go to public school. I separate from them. Or private school, I separate from them. Or we do this when we, we separate ourselves and our children from people in the church because they don't have the same parenting standards as us. 
Same parental views as us. Right? Oh, yeah, we do this. We also do this when we say, oh, man, I can't let they let, I can't believe so-and-so lets their family see that, lets their kids see that movie or read that book. Oh, we do this all the time, don't we? Now, one of my mentors, though he doesn't know it, is John Piper. One of these days I'm going to tell him and he'll be really, really glad that I told him that. <laughs> but I, I read, I, I mean, I think, of, I think there's two, in my mind, in my view, I listen to two preachers. One's Tim Keller and one's John Piper. You want to learn about preaching, they're older men that are down the road. They preach the gospel and they preach with passion. That's, that's what I like. Well, anyhow. One time he said, you know what he said? He told his congregation something. It was very, very important. He told his congregation his greatest fear for them, for us. Do you know what it was? This is what he said. My greatest fear for us is that we're raising a bunch of Pharisees. In other words, my greatest fear for this church, Bethlehem Baptist Church, of 3,000 to 4,000 people, my greatest fear for us is we're raising good children, respectable children, who don't know they need a Savior. That's my greatest fear. Now, those of you who don't consider yourselves religious, you shake your head at all the stuff I just mentioned, and you begin to remember why you don't go to church, Right? You can't stand that stuff. Now, I, I don't want you to go too far in judging too quickly, okay? This is what I want to say to you. I want to say to you that everyone has some standard they're trying to live up to to find acceptance and affirmation and identity and to be okay. Every single human being in this room, in the world, in Hollywood, in the Final Four, in professional football, every artist... Every worker, every professional, every Wall Street person, everyone in all race, economic, whatever it is, everyone is trying to live up to a certain standard to find acceptance, affirmation, and solid security in their life. Okay? It could be beauty. It could be economic, financial levels. It could be social connections, standards of social connections. It could be standards of social friendships and relationships. It could be standards, educational degrees. It could be athletic prowess. What's the standard? Everyone's got a standard. We're all living up to those standards. And so what I got I I to ask you to be honest with me. Do you think... Do you think you never separate yourself in your thoughts and in your words and your deeds from other people who don't measure up to your standards in other kinds of areas? How do you treat the less attractive people in your life? Do you give them the same attention, the same look in the eye, the same wanting to get their friendship? Come on, we all do this. Every parent stands by themselves and prays to themselves when they start a sentence with their child like this. You ready? When I was your age, I fill in the blank. Well, when I was your age, 
I didn't watch TV like you do. I never played the... I wasn't an Xbox addict. When I was your age, I was outside at least three times, three hours a day. When I was your age, I was... When I was your age, I never talked to my dad like that. When I was your age, I... When I... <laughs> my wife and I had a conversation recently about the popular Twilight books. Whether we would let our oldest daughter, who's gone close to being a teenager, whether we would let her read them or not. So my wife read all the books. It passed the lewd, crude, and inappropriate test, and it passed our standards for what we consider good, beautiful, and true. But I still wasn't convinced that my oldest princess should read these books. I had a thoroughly thought-out argument, very powerfully persuasive, and so I just said it. I said, I don't want my daughter reading that relational stuff. <laughs> my wife smiled like she knew I was going to say that. <laughs> men, I mean, men, don't you hate that? When your wife smiles... Because she knows what you're going to say. I can't stand that. And she gives me that look because she knew I was going to say it. And then she said to me, Honey, were you ever a teenager, Spartan? Were you ever a teenager? What are you going to do? Pretend your teenage daughter is not a normal human being? A normal teenage girl who's growing up? Are you going to pass up a wonderful opportunity to come alongside her with gutsy grace? <laughs> with gutsy grace? To walk through this stuff with her? To be with her? To help her? To show her what's good? To show her what's not? Are you going to pass that up? Ah! <laughs> right? And I still didn't want to admit defeat. And I could hear my heart grumbling, and my heart was saying this. Well, when I was her age, I was still hitting girls at recess. <laughs> well, a couple of weeks ago, I went with my daughter to Walmart, and we purchased two Twilight posters <laughs> that she picked out. All right? That was a great bonding time. I said, oh, so that's Edmund. <laughs> so I looked at the poster. I went in. I was tucking the girls in last week. I was tucking them into bed, and I looked over at the poster at Edmund. <laughs> and I snarled at him. And then I turned to my eight-year-old daughter, my youngest daughter, and I said, honey, you know what daddy's going to do? Daddy's going to take a picture of himself and blow it up into a life-size poster. <laughs> And, and I'm going to put it above your bed on your wall. And she looked at me, okay, Daddy. <laughs> yeah. And then, this is the best part. My wife walked into the room. She overheard the whole thing. I saw her. So I walked by. I looked at Edmund. And I gave my best Edmund pose. <laughs> and left the room. Okay, y'all. What's the root issue for this Pharisee? What's the root issue for him? What's the root issue for you and me? 
What's the root issue for our insecurity, our inferiority, our pride, our unstableness, our anger, our condescending superiority over others, our separating ourselves from others, our despising others? What's the root issue? It's found in verse 9. Let's look at it together. You ready? This is the actual beginning interpretation. This is a great parable. It tells you what the point is or the interpretation is before he gives you the story. Here it is, verse 9. He also told this story, this parable, to some who trusted in themselves. What does that mean? That, that, here's what that means. They were righteous. Do you know what this means? The answer is, our root problem, that Pharisee's root problem, is trusting in himself or trusting in his own righteousness. You know what that means? That means trying to stuff your God-shaped hole for acceptance, for approval, for affirmation, for solid acceptance, to be okay, trying to stuff it with your own stuff. And whatever your own stuff is, that's what righteousness is to you. Your own righteousness, your own stuff. It could be, again, beauty. It could be athletic prowess. It could be your mind, your musical abilities. It could be the way you interact with your relational gifts with people. It could be your social connect, whatever it is. Your political points of view. Your theology. It can be lots of things. Your applications of the law. It can be lots of things. You know, this is the way you got to do childbirth. This is the way you got to eat. This is the way you got to do this. This is the way you got to be healthy. This is the way you got to, whatever it is. For the Pharisee, instead of, instead what's happening here, the root issue is he's trusting in his own righteousness, stuffing his God-shaped hole with himself or his own stuff instead of the grace of God. That's the root issue here. For the Pharisee, what he was stuffing himself with was his own spiritual performance, particularly two areas. Notice what it is, fasting and tithing, two commanded things. So hear me, you can keep God's law and break it at the same time. You can tithe and steal from God at the same time. You can fast to show great spiritual vigor and great, quote, spiritual dependency upon God, but be as spiritually independent and rebellious as the prostitute. Man, this is one of those passages that turns everything upside down, doesn't it? I mean, even the Pharisees' standards were better than what God had actually given. He said he fasted two times a week. You know how many times you're prescribed to fast in Israel? One time a year. The annual day of atonement. And this guy's saying, I do it two times a week. So there. Also, when you were prescribed to tithe, you are prescribed to tithe your first fruits, the wine, the oil, your crops. You know what this guy said? I tithe everything. Everything I get. I tithe. I mean, if you want to see a well-put-together person, a person that you would look at and say, I want to be like that, or I want my kids to be like, I want them to talk like that, walk like that, be like that, be that respectful in society, it's this dude. And he doesn't go home justified. 
So what is it for you? What is it for me? What is it that I'm trying to stuff in the God-shaped hole for acceptance and approval with God? And if I'm not religious for my acceptance and my sense of affirmation and my sense of solid security, what is it? What is it for you? Now, some of you are thinking, listen, I don't feel good about myself, so I don't think there's anything, any righteousness in me that I'm trusting in. Because I just don't feel good about myself. Now, please hear me, and I want to say this as gently as possible, as gently as I can. And it's this. The reason you don't feel good about yourself is because whatever your righteousness is, you're not meeting its standards. Okay? So the reason why you feel lousy and you feel discouraged and you feel depressed or insecure or very inferior to yourself is because you have a righteous standard of righteousness, but you're not meeting that standard in your own eyes or in the eyes of another person. And so you feel lousy. That's why that's happening. Okay? All right. Let's get to the end here. And the end is this. Look at verse 14. Jesus could have said, look at verse 14. This is the summary. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who God exalts will be humbled. You get the picture. Now, Jesus could have said, I tell you, this man left. Jesus could have said, I tell you, this man left justified. Or I tell you, this man left the temple justified. Why? Why did he say this man went home justified? It's very intentional. Very intentional. You know why I think? Because going home is what happens to you when you are justified. You're finally home. When you are accepted, when you are approved, when you find the deepest longing for a solid security and God to deeply, personally welcome you and take you in, your home. That's where life is. That's where life is lived. And if we don't get here, we're insecure, anxious, fearful, striving, comparing, jealous, envious people. So who is this person that is justified? It comes home. Look at verse 13. Here, here it is. Here's the, here's the question. Here's the answer. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast. I mean, I know that sounds weird. But you know what that's doing? He's beating his breast because that's where his heart is. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That person's justified. This much we do know that whatever's happening here, just from what we've looked at in the text, whatever's happening here, we have to conclude that this man is not trusting in himself. We have to conclude that this man is not trusting in his own righteousness. Because we know that's what the other man's doing. We have to conclude that this man is not trying to stuff his God-shaped hole with his stuff with some form of righteousness. We have to conclude that. So what is he doing? Well, I love grammar. Love it. 
So yes, there is a, there is a commentary person inside of me. Because I'm a Greek geek, I'm a grammar geek, but I love grammar because God's in the grammar. This is a tremendous word where it says merciful. The word merciful, there's a specific Greek word for mercy or have mercy. And it's a very popular word used throughout all the New Testament. It's a big word. It's got a big circle. It's got lots of meaning, meaning merciful. But there's another Greek word, which is what this word is. It's not the big word for mercy. It's a word that fits inside that, which is why the translators use mercy. But it's a word that fits inside mercy, but it's more narrow. It's more specific. It's more geekish. And you know what it is? This is what he's saying. Oh, God, make atonement for me, a sinner. Oh, God, make that blameless, sacrificial blood of that lamb that was just slaughtered. Of that lamb, may it be my, my penalty for my sins. May it be made for me a sinner. May the blamelessness and the the whiteness and the pureness of that sacrifice be unto me. In other words, he could have just said if he was a a Romans person, if he was Paul, he would have just said, oh God, you justify me. I can't justify myself. And so what we get is the picture here is what we get is justification is a lamb, a sacrificial lamb that's sacrificed as a substitute punishment and a substitute perfection for a sinner, a tax collector. And the one whom God justifies is the one who trusts in a substitute punishment and a substitute perfection or righteousness for one who doesn't have either. That one goes home justified. That one's taken in, welcomed, loved, accepted. Now, here's how we'll end. They're my over-church friends, and I know you're here. I know that you're trying to justify yourself through your, your spiritual performance. You may not think you are. Just test some of your spiritual performance. Test when you fail. How miserable do you get? How fearful are you when it's not done? That's a test. So our overchurch friends, they're trying to justify yourself through your spiritual performance. You're, trying, you're inwardly insecure. And you know that I separate myself from others in the church. This is, this is, this is what you need to do. It's time to come home. It's time to trust in a substitute punishment and a substitute perfection for you in the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ Himself. And for my non-church friends who can't escape, you may try, you can try it, you cannot escape the deep longing and drive in your soul for acceptance and affirmation and security and being okay and proving you're not a bum. You can't. Try to convince yourself and be successful, but then why are there midlife crises? Why do men go through midlife crises? Because they get a, a fresh awakening that they didn't meet their standard. 
are what they thought life should be. But instead of changing course, they just go in another stuff-it-your-own-way pursuit. So it's time for you to come home. It's time for you to trust in God's Lamb of God, to trust in a substitute penalty for your sins and a substitute perfection or righteousness for you. And God welcomes you home. And the deepest longing, the deepest part of your soul is you hear personally, lovingly, I accept you. You are my son and my daughter. Come into the kingdom of God. Throw the feast. Give him the ring. Give him a robe. My son and daughter was lost as now is found. And there's a tremendous party, and there always is a party. And so those of you that are usually unchurched, you like parties. Here's the greatest party of them all. And the reason why there are parties on earth is because heaven is a celebration and a party. So really, earth is a cheap imitation. It's a counterfeit. Or it's a good echo. How do we make it? Finally, normal, messy Christians, those of you that are struggling in the Christian life, those who are struggling with Christian growth, you're struggling with certain areas in your life, I'm becoming more convinced of this, as I mentioned earlier, that most of our struggles that are inordinate and biting us deeply, enough to where we've got our attention or God gets our attention, most of them are the fruit of or the effect of Losing sight of our justification. Losing sight of and calling you back to trust in the substitute punishment and the substitute perfection of another. And when we get that, we're home again. We're okay again. Amen.